thing I'd like to do is thank you for allowing me to be your associate pastor. I, uh, It's truly an honor, and I, I will do my best to live up to that and glorify God through my service here. But again, thank you very much. I, I'm sorry. That was emotional for me. I, I always teared up a little bit there. But I, I, It's such a privilege. Um, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we start this morning. Father, I thank you that you are here in this place. I thank you that we are the church of the living God. I thank you for allowing us to worship you through music, through membership, through dedications, through every breath that we breathe. Just be with us and help each one of us, Lord, to take something away from the message this morning. You are a glorious God who it is a privilege to worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I cried three times yesterday within a two-hour period. We went to see Jesus Revolution. Me and that one of the boys there, that, that tall one there at the end, me and his brother, we went to see Jesus Revolution and I cried three times. And I'm going to tell you, I don't usually cry at movies. I usually pretend I'm hot or something. I, I do that. But I was, I was tearing up. Were you tearing up at all? A little bit. He has to say that because I'm pointing him out. Um, you know, what moved me wasn't the cinematography, it wasn't, it wasn't even so much that it was a beautiful movie. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it and I recommend you go see it. But it was what spoke to my heart. We're singing songs about speaking Jesus. And I, I look around at our generation, church, and I say, what are we offering to these young people today? What are we offering to them? Just like the movie Jesus Revolution, it was about the Jesus movement in the 70s where the hippies, some of them came to the Lord. They were looking for satisfaction. They were looking for salvation in drugs and in peace and love and, and living communally and, and doing things they shouldn't be doing. And finally, some of them started to realize that they couldn't find fulfillment in those things. And some of them found Jesus. And they looked around in the world and they saw that there was nobody speaking Jesus to them. They looked to the churches and they were not welcome. They looked to the churches and the churches had no room for them because they didn't want their shag carpets to get dirty by people who didn't wear shoes. I cried three times. Because, church, I hope that we as lovers of Jesus have a message for today's youth who are searching. I hope that we have an answer for them, that you won't find satisfaction in drugs, in video games, in social media, in online friends and relationships, but you can only find true satisfaction in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to be here for them and love them and not just be judgmental, not give them a bunch of rules, but we have to speak Jesus to them. And what does that mean, church? That means we have to love them. Jesus speaks the language of love because God is love. And we need to understand that. And this needs to be a place where if a hippie walks in with bare feet, we say, sit up front. And I cried because the older pastor had to have his heart changed. And he had to come to the realization that he had forgotten how to speak Jesus to people. It became about stuff and not about Jesus. So go see the movie. That's my best plug. Go see the movie.
But more than that, to you adults in the audience, not audience, in the congregation, speak Jesus to your children. Our children are floundering. Our children are searching. Our children are seeking. Our children want something more than they're consuming. But we're not speaking it into their lives. We're not loving them. We're not telling them who Jesus is. We're not telling them what Jesus is all about. And this morning, church, as we talk about the sanctity of life, we're stepping away from 1 Samuel for this week's sermon. And we're going to talk about the sanctity of life. But I'm going to tell you something. I spoke to about five or six people, including my own sons. When you hear the term sanctity of life or pro-life or anti-abortion, why do you think the Bible or why do you think Christians should love life and be opposed to abortion and not want babies to be discarded or killed. And they all said, because God wouldn't want that. But they couldn't give a really deep, hardcore biblical answer for why abortion is wrong or why life is so important, so precious. So this morning, church, we're going to go over why life is so precious biblically. But I guess my secondary message to you is speak to your children about the issues of the day. Speak to them about what's going on. Speak to them about lesbians, gays, transvestites. Speak to them about the things they're going to run into. And tell them why Jesus is the right way and the world is wrong. Give them some grounding. Give them some foundation. Don't let them flounder up there, out there, never wanting to say anybody's wrong. We never want to say anybody's wrong in this world today because we're afraid that someone won't like us. But we must say they're wrong with compassion and with love. And we have to have an answer. We have to have Jesus for them, church. Another caveat, and it's taken me long to start the message, and it's already 12 o'clock. If you have had an abortion and you're in this room this morning, and there is a chance that somebody has, and you're a child of God, Jesus has forgiven you, and your guilt has been washed away. You are loved, you are precious, and you don't have to do anything else to earn his forgiveness. He forgives you and loves you. Because I'm going to talk about abortion today, and I don't want you to feel like it's about you. You are his daughter, you are his child, and you are just as forgiven as anybody else in this room. Church, The word sanctity, sanctity of life, it means the state of being holy or sacred. So when we talked about the sanctity of life, we talk about life being holy, separate, set apart, sacred, different than normal, something unique created by God. It's sanctified. So I want us to understand that, that it is set apart. But I also want us to understand that the word fetus is not a bad word. The other side has taken that word and they've replaced the word fetus for baby because it makes them feel less guilty about taking the life of a baby. So you use the word fetus. Fetus is just a medical term derived from Latin. It means offspring, bringing forth, hatching of young. It means to plant, eventually to grow. So if I use the word fetus, I'm talking about a human life that is growing. Embryo, fetus, baby. All right, just, just clarification of terms. So I go to work each morning and I pass these two buildings. Have you seen these two buildings? Yes. All right, so on the left, on my left here, your left, is Planned Parenthood. I have the door circled in red. And on the right is the Pregnancy Help Center, door on the side in red. So this could not be more symbolic of what we're talking about. Two choices, 
You walk up to these buildings, you have one of two choices. You go to the left, and they're going to tell you or counsel you very severely to terminate the pregnancy. If you go to the right, they're going to help you keep the baby, and they're not going to stop. They're going to help you provide for the baby once it's born, because that's always a question anti-lifers ask. What about after it's born? Yes, Christians do care about babies after they're born. But the choice is clear. Now, I struggle with this, church, because when I see these buildings, sometimes I see somebody out front with a sign walking up and down. Last week, a person had a sign, and it said, babies are killed here. They were walking up and down, walking up and down. I thought, well, am I not doing enough? Should I be out there with a sign that says, babies are killed here? I thought to myself, no. I don't think that sign is going to stop anybody from going into this building. I think it's going to offend more people. But should I be out there with a sign that says, Jesus loves you? Should I be out there with a sign that says Jesus loves you and just be silent and walk up and down with my sign? But my question for me, church, is should I do something? I write my congressmen, I write my senators, I do those things that the family, family, um, family uh, council uh, group asks us to do. I do all those things and I, I vote pro-life, I do those things, but should I do more? I ask myself, if they were killing three-month-old birth babies in there, what would I do? You know what I'd do? I'd block that door. You're not killing a three-month-old born baby in here. You're not going to do it. Not on my watch. But yet, a three-month-old unborn baby, ugh, these aren't easy things. What do I do about that? Is life that precious to me? And do I know when it starts? Abortions, there's almost a million abortions a year in the United States. I'm going to have to quickly go through these things because we're behind. But the culture of convenience, one of the things that they always say is, well, what about rape? What about incest? People should be able to have abortions because of all the rape and all the incest and all the health issues that could arise killing the mother. Here are the main reasons that people have uh, abortions, and these are from pro-choice groups. I pulled it from pro-choice so it, it, it wouldn't be questioned as much as I pulled it from pro-life. Not ready for a child. 25% of abortions are done because they're not ready for a child. Can't afford the baby. They just don't have the money right now to have another baby. So we might as well terminate it. Done having children. 19%. I'm done. I don't want any more. I got two. I don't want any more. Don't want to be a single mother. 8%. Not mature enough to raise a child. So you see the reasons, the top reasons for having an abortion, for not sanctifying life in our hearts and minds in our society is general, generally reasons of convenience. Well, you say, John, they're not all convenient. Some people can't afford it. Yeah, by and large, people are having abortions for these reasons, and the majority of them probably could struggle through and have a baby and support it. But... There's more. 53% of abortions are performed by taking two pills designed to kill the fetus. The first pill you see there, mefesprazone, I can't say it because my mouth is dry, stops the blood flow to the fetus. So it cuts off all nutrition to the fetus, stops the blood flow to the fetus. The fetus eventually shrivels up. It becomes lifeless, without life. And then you take the second pill, and the second pill forces the dead fetus out of the body. 53% are now killing their babies by pill because it's convenient, it's easy, no surgery is required, you don't have to stick anything into the uterus. We have to make everything convenient and easy. What's wrong with just popping a couple pills and getting rid of my pregnancy? Everything's about ease. Everything's about convenience in our society, in our world. Paul says this in 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Now listen to this, without self-control. You know one way to prevent a pregnancy church? You know one good way? Practice a little self-control. Hey, to avoid terminating a baby, maybe a little self-control. But in the end times, in the last days, and throughout history, it just gets worse as our hearts grow colder. Self-control is almost non-existence. They will be haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure, and I'll leave that there because you know that babies often come about through pleasurable acts. So we'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God who sanctifies life. We will be not able to control ourselves because pleasure is so, it's like dopamine in our brain that we so want pleasure that we disregard the edicts of our God. I have this up here because this is interesting and I'm going to go by quickly. Uh, I just wanted to prove it to you. This is from NPR, National Public Radio in 2005. And in this article, they actually say when life begins. Where do we find the answer, this article says. Not in the Bible, the Talmud, or other religious writings. Rather, the answer is to be found in the works of modern embryology and developmental biology. In these texts, NPR, we find little or nothing in the way of scientific uncertainty. Human development begins at fertilization, write embryologists Keith Moore and T.V. Persaud in the Developing Human, 7th edition, the most widely used textbook on human embryology. Secular scientists say that life begins at fertilization. Do you think you could get any scientist to say that in 2023? No, no. Science doesn't even exist anymore. Scientists back then, almost 20 years ago, said, yeah, when the egg and sperm come together and they form the embryo and it starts growing, that's when life begins. And it was in textbooks that our students actually read. You, you will, I, I challenge you to find that in a secular textbook these days. Now nobody knows when life begins. Well, somebody does. God does. When does life begin? For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. For the life of the creature is in the blood. What does the first pill do? It cuts the blood supply, the nutrients from the unborn child because life is in the blood and the embryo will die and shrivel up. The fetus will die and shrivel up. The baby will die and shrivel up because life is in the blood, the Bible tells us. When does life begin? Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So we have science saying it's at fertilization. We have God saying, before you were formed in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. I set you apart. I sanctified you. I did this for you. And yes, this is speaking to Jeremiah, but it's also speaking to you and I. Who in here doesn't think that God knew before you were formed in the womb that you were going to be formed in the womb? He knew because he formed you in the womb. 
I knew you. So we are killing a million babies a year who God knows. God knows. The will to survive. God in Romans says we have to learn from creation. God in the Psalms says we have to look around and learn from creation. And I tell you, church, I was sitting in a park the other day, and I saw hardwood trees with buds on them. And it's February. They want to live. God's creation wants to live. I saw dandelions in full bloom because things that God has created can't wait to live. They want to live. They want to come to life because God has put the desire for life in his creation. And it's no different for men, no different for women, no different for babies. They say when a baby has to have surgery in the womb and the instruments come into the womb, what does a baby do? shrinks back from the instrument because it's something far and entered into the womb, the baby shrieks back from the instrument not wanting to be harmed. The baby wants to live. The embryo divides cells so quickly it would be the size of the moon if the division of cells didn't stop or didn't slow down because it wants to gain life so quickly and rapidly. The cells divide because God has created us to live. The innocence... Protect the innocent. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Let's stop there. We don't have to go into all the things that abomination to the Lord. But one of the things that is an abomination to the Lord are hands that shed innocent blood. Church, what is more innocent than an unborn baby? What is more innocent and helpless than an unborn baby? Nothing. Nothing. And the hands that take that innocent life are an abomination to our God and should be an abomination to us. That act should be an abomination to us. So if you're sitting on the fence and not thinking that abortion is a sin, think again because to God, innocent hands that harm, I mean hands that harm the innocent are an abomination to God. Well, John, you might say, well, babies have a sin nature. We all do, but babies have not sinned. Babies are innocent. They're the most innocent humans you can have. Unborn child. Now, listen to this. This is from Job, and this is a great passage here where Job says, hey, haven't I been good to the poor? Haven't I been good to those who are needy? Haven't I been good to those who are fatherless? Listen to the words of Job, and maybe this can translate into what we should do as Christians. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or needy without garments... For their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece. In other words, if I didn't give them clothes from my sheep, from my fleece, if I didn't warm them when they're naked and cold, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, listen to this church, knowing that I had influence in court. Listen to that. If I, Job, didn't help the fatherless, knowing that I had political power to do so in the courts, the courts of politics in those days, shame on me. Shame on me. If I did not, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, because if you don't fight for the fatherless, it's like you raising your hand against them. But listen, 
Listen to what Job thinks should happen if he doesn't do these wonderful things. Then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. I could not not take care of the poor. I could not not clothe the naked. I could not, take, I could not, not take care of the fatherless. Because if I didn't do those things, let my arm fall off, because I fear the Lord more than man." Church, we have power. We have the power of the ballot. We have the power of the letter. We have the power of the court. We have the power to fight and to stand up for what's right. And church, I tell you, far too many Christians have stopped standing and are comfortable sitting where they are. Too many Christians are just phoning it in. Too many Christians are not letting their children see someone stand up in their family for righteousness. For life, if you're not going to stand up for life, what are you going to stand up for? Are you speaking Jesus in your homes? Whoever strikes a man so that he shall be, whoever strikes a man and he dies shall be put to death. The value of life. Well, I believe in capital punishment. I believe that somebody who takes a life, their life should be taken. Well, how can I hold that belief, but yet I don't want babies to be killed? Well, I know to you it's obvious, right? Innocence versus guilty. The baby is innocent and their life is being taken, but the criminal who takes a life is guilty of taking a life. Therefore, the greatest penalty you can give for taking a life is taking that person's life. God says that taking a life is such a serious matter that the highest penalty you can pay is not 30 years in prison, not 40 years in prison, not 90 years in prison, but giving up your own life because you did not value that life you took. That is scripture. Yes, we forgive people, but we want the penalties of the law to remain in place. And you'll find that in Romans chapter 13 as well. This is not just an Old Testament teaching. So I am proudly for the death penalty in, in the right cases, at the same time saying I don't think we should kill children because God values life. For God so loved the world, church, what did he do? He gave his only son. What does that nice word gave mean? He killed his only son. His only begotten son. He gave him over to crucifixion. He nailed him to the cross. God did that. Yes, the Jews did that. Yes, the Romans did that. Yes, the Gentiles did that. Yes, you and I did that. But it was by the will of a sovereign God that he was nailed to that tree. And by God's will, it could not have been done otherwise. He gave a life for a life. Your life. My life. All of our lives. Because a life can only be given for a life. Because life has a tremendous value. And his life was enough for all, the whole world. Image bearers. We talked about this in 1 Samuel. I don't want to beat this to death. But church, I'm going to be graphic. Forgive me. I have a Weimariner. I have a dog. I, know I said what too when my wife first said we've got to get a Weimariner. I said, I don't know. What is that? But it's a great dog. They're about 75 pounds. They're called gray ghosts. They're these, uh, they have these gray coats and they have these, these glowing yellow eyes. They look like ghosts at night when you see them. Really cool dogs. She's a girl. She's a female dog. Now what if my dog got pregnant and her belly was full of puppies? Her, her womb was full of puppies. And I did the horrible thing and I just beat my dog to the point where she lost those puppies. 
I know, that's horrible, but I need you to think. Hey, you know what? A pro-choice person would think that is horrendous, wouldn't they? Any human being would think it was horrendous for me to beat a dog so badly that she lost her pups. Why, church? Because we love puppies. They're cute. They're innocent. Church, how much more should we grieve over the loss and destruction of a child in the womb? How much more, how much more significant should that be? Because a dog, even though it's God spelled backwards, please don't come up to me after the sermon, a dog does not bear the image of God. Humans do. You and I bear the image of God. Therefore, we are sanctified. Our lives are sanctified, set apart, holy, different than any other creature. When I was a kid, I was, I was, a, I was, you know, I was an insane kid. We would go out with tennis rackets and we would hit fireflies. And we would watch them sail across the dark sky and light up. We thought we were cool. Now, did my mother say, oh, you guys are awesome? She said, no, don't do that. Don't be idiots. It was a firefly. Firefly? I can kill that. Mom's all right with that. Puppies? Absolutely not. That's grotesque. Humans? We bear the image of God. A firefly doesn't. We bear the image of God. I'm not saying it's right, kids, so don't go home and get the tennis rackets out. But we do not want to take the image of God and trample it underfoot. I have to move quickly. I'm sorry. All right, a special creation. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Unformed substance. That's a phrase they like to use, that it's just a blob of cells. Well, frankly, folks, that's all I am. Apart from God, I am just a blob of cells. But God has seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet they were not, there was not one of them. So God gives us anthropomorphisms here. He speaks to us like he's a human. And he says, hey, I'm making something special in this womb, in this dark place, this secret place. I'm weaving together something, some special creation. And I'm weaving it and I'm weaving it and I'm making it. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be something that, that strikes fear in people because it's so amazing. I'm, I'm creating life. And let's carry the anthropomorphism a little further and then suddenly, while God's in the midst of working in the womb, creating something special, an instrument comes in and sucks the baby out. I say that to be graphic. No, that's not what happens. God's not actually in there weaving, but he wants us to know how special and how intricate the formation of a life in the womb is to him. It's so special, but yet we say it's okay just to take a pill and flush it down the toilet or to put an instrument in there and rip it out. What's this have to do with us, church? We have to value life. In today's society, we don't value life as we should. You know about all the killings, all the murders, all the people who just want to take life in this world. Life is precious. But I don't want to leave you with just a message about abortion. I want to leave you about a gospel message. If the life of an innocent child is important to God, I want you to understand that the life of a sinner is also important to God. 
that Jesus Christ, when he died, he died for sinners, he died for your neighbor, he died for your unsafe family member, he died for me, he died for you, because not only is unborn life important and vital and sacred and holy, but so is born life that is in sin. So Jesus Christ came to die for that life so that we might share Jesus with people and bring them into eternal life so that they might have life more abundantly. So Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him. And he with me, he who overcomes, I grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Church, we need to speak Jesus to people. We need to speak Jesus to this generation. We need to speak Jesus to the people who are unsaved, and we need not to be afraid to do so. Just like we started this sermon, church, for the unborn child, there were two doors. For the unsaved church, there are two doors. And Jesus is knocking, and he's saying, come through the door of life. But church, if we let this world, without hearing the gospel, go through the door of death, they will spend eternity in hell apart from a loving God. And I know that's not something people like to talk about today, but that is the option. Hell or heaven, life or death, Jesus or destruction. So I want you to think about the sanctity of human life today, not only as a baby, but also those in your world that maybe your mouth has not spoken the gospel to in forever. Maybe you're ashamed of the gospel. Maybe you don't think you have good news. Maybe you don't think people want to hear Jesus anymore. I disagree with you. I disagree with you. People want to hear Jesus, but they want to hear the Bible Jesus. They don't want to hear some Jesus we created. They want to hear the Jesus of love. They want to hear the Jesus of forgiveness. They want to hear the Jesus of grace. They want to hear Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for life is sanctified. It is holy. It is separate. And you have created it. And you have given us the desire to live. Just as you have given us the desire to live physically, Lord. Put in our hearts the desire to live spiritually. For those of us, Lord, who are born again, I pray that you would rekindle the fire in our hearts so that we may take hold of the abundant life that you have granted us. And Lord, I pray that we have hearts for those unborn children, but also for those sinners in the world who need salvation, who need Jesus. I pray that we would have the boldness to say to them, you're looking for an answer? It's Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. Church, I give you a blessing this morning. Go in peace. Remember that life is precious. And remember, you have a message to share with the dying world. Amen.